Welcome to Line of Credit, a podcast by Merrick's Capital, where we bring you insights from across the private credit space in agriculture, commercial real estate, infrastructure, and more. Your host is Adrian Redlick, Executive Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Merrick's Capital. Our guest for episode three is Peter O'Donnell, CEO of Southern Cross Farms and active member of the Merrick's Capital Agriculture Credit Committee and Advisory Board. You may experience some variances in audio quality during this episode, as Peter is joining us from Mildura in country Victoria. Uh, Welcome everyone to the third version of um, Line of Credit. I'm the Chief Investment Officer of Merrick's Capital, Adrian Redlick, and um, today it's my pleasure to have Peter O'Donnell, who's the CEO and Principal behind Southern Cross Farms, one of our key partners here at Merrick's Capital. Pete, not only is the CEO of of Southern Cross Farms, but has you know, kindly been a, a key member of our credit committee. Um, but also, Southern Cross Farms manage um, a lot of our loans from the physical aspect, visiting farms, doing due diligence, and monitoring them. Um, thanks for joining us, Pete. Thanks, Adrian. Good to be here. So, before we sort of kick off and get into the, the nitty gritty of what's going on in the agri sector, particularly in the, the hort space, which you guys are leaders in, maybe just thought give us a little bit of background uh, about yourself and and what Southern Cross Farms do, because it's yeah, it's a fast growing enterprise these days. Yeah, it is. It's a it's a really busy space. I, I suppose my background is uh, I'm an accountant by trade, and uh, amuses a lot of my friends to. Uh, when they find out what I do now um, involved in farming. Although I'm from a farming region in, around Mildura, I'm not from a farming family. So, so our journey to Southern Cross Farms was, uh, was via the accounting space, you know, doing some bookkeeping for farms and, uh, and gradually got into the management space uh, about a dozen years ago now. And uh, just because of the opportunity that, that sat there, clearly there was a, there was a need for uh, people that wanted to invest into the space and needed some, some uh, operational, financial and organisational expertise to, to help them set up and run their organisation. So, so we, we found a, a bit of a niche there uh, for us to, to step into. And, uh, you know, it's, a, it's been a, a really good journey for us so far, lots of ups and downs, but it's a, you know, it's a great space to be in farming in Australia. So how many farms would you manage today, Pete? Yeah, so we have about uh, we have have about thirteen farms. It's about two thousand hectares across four nearly five states. So we uh, we do a lot in the southern part of Australia, Riverland, Riverina, around the Sarasia region. We have uh, we have a developing project in uh, in Northern Territory, and and we're we're doing a, a long term um, development right from planning through to implementation phase in Northern Territory as well. Our predominant you know, operational activities right now are, are around Riverina and Sunraysia, citrus, almonds, avocados, wine grapes, table grapes, a tiny bit of mango. So there's a bit of variation about the crops. We do a little bit of canola and wheat as well on one of the farms. So most of the cropping is fairly intensive. It's horticulture. Um, obviously, it's not apples for apples, you know, when we talk about farming, um, broadacre farming where people manage many hundreds of thousands of, of hectares. When it comes to horticulture, obviously, um, every hectare is highly valuable and, and fairly intensive farming, and that's the space that you operate in. 
Yeah, that's right. Look, Hort is a uh, you know, permanent irrigated tree and vine crops is our space. It's not the easiest space to, to play in and you know, it's climatic and market variabilities that we see there. And although we need to plan long term for our farms, invariably there's there's a lot of uh, uh, short term uh, impacts on our farm. We've seen that in recent times around supply chains issues and and marketing challenges and and the cost of materials and nutritional yeah, so although we need to plan long term we you know, we are affected need to be flexible and move quickly when there's uh, you know, short term shocks and how many people in the team including people on farm these days yep so we've got about uh, we have an off farm and on farm team and and they all work together we have about uh, 19 people off farm and uh, and about 50 on farm. So people management, uh, like everything in Australia and, and globally at the moment, um, is a, a critical element. And so we'll cover that. Um, thought today, you know, we'll touch about a number of things. Get your outlook for the different subsectors, um, the likes of citrus, um, table grapes, wine grapes, almonds in particular, which probably cover the majority of commodities um, that you guys are managing, um, but also you know how the the labour shortage is impacting rural Australia um, and the like, because in many ways we're in a boom. You know, farm land values and prices have continued to escalate rapidly. Commodity prices, maybe setting aside wine grapes, which we can can touch on um, and citrus for that matter as it was impacted by China last year um, it's been very good times but like everything there's always something that keeps you up at up at night so yeah we'll, we'll cover off on on what you're seeing in those different subsectors and then you know talk about what you're seeing in the in the credit space you know where the gaps are um, and this will touch a little bit on how we're working together so you know may, maybe sort of kick off a little you know you're operating along the, the Murray River predominantly and and you know highly irrigated crops and and the like um sort of kick off and see you know how, how have the harvests been you know we've just come out of the grape season um and we're heading into or in the midst of citrus harvest how are the conditions yeah it's been a, a weather is a really strong determinant of how our harvest sort of unfold and it's been really wet uh, in Sarasia region even wetter in the Riverina region so the if you talk about a wine grape uh, season that's been okay mechanically harvest have got it off pretty well um, and into the wineries almonds has been you know, a lot more challenging you know, because you've, you've got to shake the trees get the fruit onto the ground and then you know, it's got to be dry enough and down to a low enough uh, percentage moisture to get into the end of the processing facilities and so you know it's been you know, widely recorded amongst some of the bigger players about the challenges of getting their fruit off this year and you know, we're no different. I think we're about 98% of, uh, of our harvest done. We're about 87% of the fruit being picked up and it's in bunkers and stored at the moment. You know, hopefully over the next month we'll have all of that in the shed. So at the 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 summer months have been wetter than they've uh, than they've been for a long time through the harvest, the key harvest part. So that's been challenging, but I think we got through that uh, by and large. We've just started our our citrus harvest, and and uh, you know, the fruit is uh, by and large a little bit smaller than large, last year, which is okay. The fruit was determined to be a little bit large last year, and uh, and there is some softness in the fruit brought about by the rain, but there's you know, good demand, and uh, we're, we're really getting into the harvest now and uh, getting that fruit off into the sheds pretty quickly. 
Today, it's, uh, we've had about 20 mil overnight. It's raining right now. I'm not sure people would understand this, but uh, uh, if the fruit's wet in the citrus space, you can't pick it. It, it leaves marks on the fruit, so we can't pick the fruit um, until it's dry each day. So a uh, rain event like today will probably put us back for a couple of days on our harvest. Always subject to weather. That's farming. Um, so maybe, maybe we'll, we'll cover off, you know, let's let's go through three or four different topics. First, the the ability to attract labour. Uh, maybe you can step us through that. Secondly, you know, we'll, we'll talk on the rising costs to develop farms and what it means for replacement costs and, and your outlook. Thirdly, you know, we'll talk about what you're sort of seeing, the supply chain, the logistics, you know, almost, uh, you know, the majority of the citrus that you produce finds its way offshore. So do almonds in many cases and table grapes a bit different. Wine is itself. So that, that supply chain. And, and lastly, we just talk about the, you know, your view, the outlook for, I guess, prices and commodity prices and land prices. But maybe just let's very topical at the moment. How are you attracting labour? You know, because you might have 70, 80 full-time staff, but you have a lot more than that when it comes to picking. Yeah, absolutely. So where you know, citrus is a labour-intensive uh, activity to get the to get the fruit off and to you know prune it as well. We had enormous challenges last year. Um, not only getting the labour, but we felt that in at the end of the day we had the numbers, but uh, the the lockdowns and the the complexities of moving our uh, these itinerant workforce across the state borders was really challenging last year. Um, so we feel right now we're we're reasonably well placed in terms of numbers of people, and uh, and that's through uh, some of our contract third parties, and uh, and so our numbers are okay. The the challenge around that unskilled labour at the moment is uh, you know there's been some regulatory changes where we have to pay uh, hourly rate minimums uh, rather than the, the previous piecemeal, which means that uh, um, unfortunately uh, if if people uh, don't have the, the basic skill levels to harvest the fruit in a timely fashion, you know, a normal sort of uh, rate, then, then we'll be removing people off the farms. Otherwise, the cost of labour will go up up enormously uh, for that activity. With ref- with reference to skilled labour, there is a massive shortage across Australia. Um, we, you, we'll touch on Greenfield Developments later on, but the, the increasing uh, plannings over the last 15 years means that there's been increasing need for skilled uh, farm managers and operational managers on a farm. The, the manager that operates a the farm, they're, they're almost the most skilled people I know. I mean, it, it, if you run a farm, you've got to be good at accounting, plan phenology, you need to understand a fixed machinery, you need to understand a balance sheet, you need to be great with HR, um, chemicals. And so it really is a broad-based skill set and, and that doesn't uh, get trained you know, very quickly. So so that, that skilled farm operator is a real challenge in our space at the moment. There's been some overseas uh, uh, immigration uh, out of South Africa and other countries where that skill set's been able to be sourced and most of its internal training development is you know, really developing that in-business in, in team, I suppose, that can... Uh, take on the next opportunity. So is that a bottleneck for you? I know you're inundated with different investment groups wanting you to to run farms for them. You know, we at Merrick's partner with you to manage loans, which isn't included in the the 13 farms that you manage. Does it make it difficult to grow? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's from an off-farm and on-farm aspect as well. Yeah, we, uh, for every uh, team we have on-farm, we need an off Farm team to uh, to support them as well. Um, so so we 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 look to the farm in the first instance for the skill set. So even when we take over a farm, there's probably an existing team there. You know, so assessing what was there previously and and the skill sets is probably our, our first 
port of call and then looking internally to our team to relocate people. Um, and then outside the uh, the group is uh, probably the last. But, um, yeah, it's a, it's a real challenge, Adrian, for sure at the moment. And the cost, you know, as you understand, there's a lot of demand for, for this type of skill set. So, so, you know, a farm manager has paid you know, a lot more money than maybe what they were a few years ago. So what's the inflation rate you're seeing in, in labour? Has it gone up? The cost of running things, is it up 10%, 20%? Unskilled in the early part of this year because of the uh, the change in how we need to pay, where in the first probably month we saw it up about uh, you know 25%, the unskilled. Um, that'll settle down as uh, as we get further into the harvest. For the more skilled labour, the managers, you're probably looking at 10 to 15%. So look... It's obviously costs are rising. Um, one of the things we like about agriculture, particularly you know, when we're lending, is that it tends to have an inflation hedge aspect to it in terms of land prices tend to go up and the commodity prices tend to go up. What's the what's been happening in, in pricing? You know, we see a lot of indices which talk about things at the macro level, but obviously it's quite differentiated, you know, with almonds quite different to grapes, quite different to citrus, and even then within subcategories of those, how, how are you seeing the outlook for each of those markets? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're right that there is different subsets and it's the first question is whether uh, whether the industry is a price taker or there is ability to you know, set the market price. And in the case of uh, you know, wine, grapes, almonds, you know, largely we are a price taker in a, in a world space. In the terms of some of the, uh, the other you know, fresh fruits, uh, apples, citrus, uh, table grapes, where, where the Australian uh, produce has a premium position and a perception in some of our overseas markets, and therefore, you know, can demand a higher price. We have the ability to you know, to get better outcomes there, but, but but that's that's relying on the continued delivery of that quality piece of fruit into the market at the right time. If I use an example, you know, it, through citrus in the second half of the citrus season last year. Um, we really found the delays in the, the provision of our product through labour, uh, logistical problems of, uh, of containers and shipping meant that by the time the produce got to the got to the customer that was prepared to pay the premium price, um, the fruit was maybe three, four weeks later than normal. So the premium product wasn't anymore the premium product and there we, we have a, you know, a, a price issue attached to that. Domestically, there's no doubt that you know, fresh fruit and vegetables will go up in price this year. I don't think there's any any doubt about that and unfortunately, the consumer will suffer that. Um, our key you know, success will be about our ability to get the, the premium piece of fruit into the hands of the, the, the best paying customer overseas this year. And where is that? So talk us through the supply chains. Where are you sending the different products? Yeah, yeah. I mean, probably uh, Southeast Asia is our is our key markets. You know, really. So China is a great market for us because it sets a it sets a good price in the first instance. So um, we're probably sending forty percent of the of the citrus from Australia to China. What we'd hope to, um, uh, you know, because of different reasons over recent years, the political uh, pressures of maybe. Uh, result in us moving away from some of those markets but uh, some really good citrus markets Vietnam, Thailand, Korea, Japan's been a market for a, a long time so there's a really strong demand for our product continues through different parts of Southeast Asia. Uh, citrus Australia without focusing too much on citrus they've, they've just uh, implemented a new strategy now that's focused on, on the Indian opportunity uh, for the same reasons China 
um, uh, was a, a strategy a dozen years ago and now became a very good market in the industry. You know, they've seen that India with 300 million middle class also has a great opportunity for us to work in there. But it's all about relationships. It's all about you know, building the brand. It's all about building the taste profile for those customers. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a long lead, but it's a, you've got to start at some stage and we're really pleased to see that happen. Uh, table grapes, you know, we're still waiting to see the final results, results for table grapes for this year, but I think we'll find that table grapes was okay. Um, there was a lower price expectation because of the logistical challenges and and I feel like you know, we'll get to the end of the season. It won't be a bad outcome, but it's, there's still a little bit of um, time to see the final results. But is table grapes more a domestic product? Oh, uh, yes, yes, and yes, and no. I mean, there's it depends on there, there's a good strategy in table grapes to just focus on the domestic markets and deliver into local supermarket chains and and through other outlets. But there's still very, very good money for the right variety to get it overseas, and you know, predominantly. Uh, table grapes is still a, a really strong export product. So in, in summary, as we talk about pricing, um, citrus is you expecting it to be up year on year? Uh, no, no, we're, we're probably looking for citrus to be a, a stable pricing scenario over the next, um, we've seen some growth probably from about 2016 up to probably peaked in 2018, 2019. Uh, we've had some difficult climatic years over the last few years, um, very dry dust storms for a couple of years and then very wet the last few years. Uh, so we're looking for some stability in the price uh, right now. So for citrus, give us a comparison versus 2015, where prices were then to where they are today. So probably 2015, uh, you might have looked at about $600 a tonne for Naval, pushed up to uh, probably $900 a tonne in uh, in 2018, 2019. We're probably looking for that $750 to $800 a tonne is a, is a good sustainable price. Right. And table grapes? Uh, uh, anything from uh, you know, $20 a box up to $100 a box. It really is, uh, table grapes is really driven by the varietal in the market. And how does that compare to 2015? Uh, still, you know, probably a little bit higher if you can get those right markets at the right time. So, um, But there's a lot more volatility in, in table grapes. So the, the volatility within a season from season to season in table grapes is, is much greater than other commodities. So, which is why, yeah, which is why you see some phenomenally good rewards in some years, and and also some you know really you know, desperately bad stories when it, it goes the wrong way. It can go up and can go down um, equally. And by contrast, almonds have probably been the leading light. Really driven by Californian drought more than anything else. Yeah, yeah. Although the pricing, I mean, almonds peaked at about $12 a kilo about four or five years ago. Uh, we saw some deterioration in price. The last year or so, it's been you know, as low as it's, it's been. I think we end up with about the almond co price was about $5.90 a kilo this year. Um, there's expectations that we will get somewhere towards $7 a kilo uh, for the for the twenty. 22 harvest, which is uh, which will see sort of break even, slightly profitable. Uh, we really need to see that price of almonds get up, you know, another another dollar a bit. There was there was a, a lot of almond uh, fruit 
around two years ago. There's a fair glut there out of California. So even though they have their water issues, they still have a lot of fruit coming out. We understand the harvest might be a little bit off this year. So, yeah, we, we move up and down a little bit with, uh, with what California does with their harvest and also what they do with their marketing. And lastly, wine grapes, which has been a tough market. Um, although with some of our borrowers who are doing out of your region and you do monitor their farms, um, who are doing some Sab Blanc and, and others, they seem to be doing quite well. But it seems to be a tale of two markets for, for wine grapes. Yeah, it's a funny one because it was it was always a tale of two markets, but it was always, you know, you know get the reds into the ground and get the whites out of the ground being historical and uh, with the opening up of China some years ago um, the chase for good red varieties and the growth and the price and the demand from China was you know, really saw an optimistic outcome um, so we saw a lot of people pull out their you know, reasonable white varieties to chase the, the much better red price um, unfortunately uh, China's decision on tariffs uh, two or three years ago now um, pivoted the market on the spot um, we now see uh, maybe reds have gone from 650 plus dollars a ton down to under 300 dollars a ton if you can sell it um, so we're in a unique position here uh, where there is actually um uh, wine grapes that just haven't been harvested. So there's there's a sense of some desperation in the space right now for, for a grower. The, the grower that you mentioned earlier, um, they've got a, a very different business model. And uh, by, you know, I'd say some uh, some good management and, and a, a, just a touch of good luck because they were chasing yield. You know, they've got some really good market opportunities at the moment and, and doing quite well. I, I think the question about yield is really important. Um, wine grapes is a, is a yield by price scenario, as most commodities are, but there has been limitations on what a grower can grow uh, historically from the wineries because of uh, the need for a certain quality to be met. Um, the, the model must be for a, a grower to succeed in the future is to be able to grow, you know, much stronger yields but maintain the quality so so the growing techniques the inputs become really important to that but if you can get the yield at a lower price there's still a chance but if if you're limited by you're limited by the wine to what your yield is at the current prices it's a really difficult uh, scenario so when we summarize all those commodity prices in in contrast to what we're seeing in grains which have more than doubled in price beef which is tripled in price and horticulture seeing robust pricing maybe may outside of wine grapes, but certainly not dramatically higher than six, seven years ago. So it really is about productivity more than price at this point in time, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it, the, it, even with the, the higher input costs, it, it, Australian farm and horticulture, I feel particularly, has been really resilient and uh, innovative. So you know, as we see high labour prices, we're seeing a, a massive acceleration in in robotics and automation in the industry. So so we'll see quick responses in, from a tech a tech aspect as well to you know to, to meet these challenges. But yeah, you know, I, I think that's reasonable to say to say that we've seen some really uh, high prices in grains, particularly right now through third-party shocks to other parts of the world that have, uh, have seen the, the opportunities for Australia be enormous. Um, the, the opportunities for Australia are, are unchanged in any commodity right now. There's a, there's a, there was a food shortage before and there's a greater food shortage now. Australia's never been placed better, I think, than to take advantage of that, even though there is, there'll be pockets of ups and downs in the industry. But we would always say in Hort and uh, in our Hort spaces, don't ever make a, a decision based on a short-term outcome. We just need to always play in the medium-term viewpoint and, uh, and otherwise we'll never sleep. 
Yeah, it's a tough, tough business in terms of highly uh, weather dependent, highly cyclical, so playing for the long term. So it's interesting that the price of, of citrus, for instance, as you say, is, is up. You know, it's up 30% on six years ago, seven years ago, yet land prices have probably gone up. 50, 60, 100%. How do you rationalise that? Uh, rationalise the increase in land price. I mean, it's a it's a clear response to uh, what was a really good citrus story. Citrus has been a bit of a sleeper for a, a long time. You know, we probably, probably citrus was, was what made me move out of the accounting field into, into this space originally. The thematics around uh, that Australia had a really good uh, premium considered product. Um, we had a place in the in overseas markets that just wanted to get their hands on it. Australia were good growers and uh, and but it was a labor intensive industry. So it always seemed to be that uh, the view was that wine grows before citrus or almonds before citrus or, or tail grows before citrus. It's only been in recent years that we've seen some uh, greater focus on citrus. There's also some uh, some technology t- attached to citrus that's you know, seen some improvements, uh, use of windbreaks and maybe some netting and, and different uh, machinery and applications of chemicals and nutritionals uh, has yeah, really seen some better outcomes in the, in, in, in the industry as well. As far as the land prices go, I think that's just a direct response for um, to what we've seen in in the market. It wasn't that long ago we were seeing a, a citrus property you could probably purchase it for you know, twenty thousand a hectare. Uh, now you know a premium pro- a premium property is probably worth sixty five thousand a hectare. We've seen you know, go up by you know, maybe threefold in uh, in the last ten years. And does that mean yield has just collapsed? You know, the income you're earning off it is, or has there been investment in productivity? Yeah, certainly investment in productivity. Maybe a greater understanding of, uh, of quality as well and, and what we need to achieve. And, and so the applications on the farm have changed enormously to, to, to get the right texture of the, of the skin, to get the right flavor, the right, right size fruit. Uh, we use imagery now. Uh, we use all different technologies to measure the, the irrigation inputs to, um, to ensure we're applying you know, the right water, the right nutrition, um, responded to, to pest pressures when they come. So there's a lot more technology attached to it, but it's all about chasing that higher profitability for sure. So it might be a good time to talk about lending and, and credit. Yeah, it's a big, as you know, a big focus for us is lending into green fields and value add, um, which is where banks sometimes struggle a bit because it's it is a two three year journey and banks are looking for immediate cash flow whereas we're obviously focused on value creation as a lender given we lend you know our balance sheets unlevered um, how are you seeing that greenfield piece and and the value add what's the the outlook at the moment given rising costs yeah yeah there's probably two parts of the question one is why you know, why is greenfield increasing in uh, in popularity in recent years and there's probably a few reasons for that you know, one is that uh, the, the increase in the value of a purchase of a hectare of you know, whatever commodity it was has been you know historically lower than the cost of development uh, but in recent years we've seen that increase in the value of, of a, a, hec- you know, a hectare of almonds might be worth 80 or 90,000 a hectare. Togos might be 80 to 120,000 hectare. Citrus at uh, 60 to 70,000 a hectare. They're all now, the value of a hectare of those those uh, planets is now greater than the cost to develop. So there's a, uh, for an investor, there's the option now to, to develop a greenfield or a brownfield uh, opportunity and, and get some you know, value 
arbitrage there gives them uplift in the value as well as then at the back end of that um, getting an income return as well if you do it you know, do it properly and set it up as it should be set up now. So, so I think that's driving a lot of the development right now is, is, is just the uh, the arbitrage opportunity. On top of that, there's just enormous investment uh, interest in Australia right now. Not only foreign investment, I think a lot of the focus is on that. And most of the people we see have a really strong domestic um, investment focus, and they're, they're largely Australian investors. There's a there's a lot of funds out there that that do need FERB to to get the deals across the line, but there's also a lot there you know, don't need FERB, and and we're seeing in that space that there's you know, lots lots of investment interest uh, right now. Um, the as far as the uh, the increase in the input costs go uh, not only from a nutritional aspect or sprays, but but just getting uh, posts, getting steel, all those things are much more expensive now. We've got to redo our cash flows often. We've got to redo our cost of development often to make sure it still makes sense. And that's probably every three to six months we're resetting those numbers right now because there is such a change in that space. So because of that, we've probably seen a, maybe some deferral, both because of cost and inability to get the, the materials to... Uh, to, to do the development. Um, and so there's just so those challenges at the moment just to, to think about when we're doing you know, developments. And you know, a lot of our investors will, uh, it's probably a two-year plan to get a development up and going so that the cost two years ago might be very different than the cost of today. Talk a little bit about sourcing rootstock or the trees. Um, that's been something that's been really intriguing to me as we've we've talked. You can't just turn the tap on, so to speak, here, can you? You can't just say, hey, I want to plant some almond trees this week. What's the lead time? What does it take to order and, and source from the nurseries these days? Yeah, so I mean, uh, so normally we would be looking to order in the next month uh, if we have uh, any nursery requirements, and uh, and at best now that that would see us probably get uh, trees in the citrus space uh, space two years from now. So we need all the rootstock, and then they apply the variety to it. Maybe we can get some wine grapes or some some grape varieties in the next twelve months. So planting in twenty twenty three, but probably you know another year on from that. There's just a lot of pressure on the nurseries at the moment. Is a bit of a a blockage. But there is also a, a, a minimum time frame for some of these um, rootlings to actually to be seeded and to turn them into a, a plant that's ready to go into the field and be planted in an orchard. So, you know, a lot of these, it's a two-year lead time just to order. Um, and then if it's a, you know, a tree uh, crop, then there's probably a, a five- to six-year lead time after that to bring it to break even and then maybe a couple of years after that to full production. So so if you're looking at that investment space in a greenfield or a brownfield development, it's a 15-year outlook, and that's the investment time frame you need to look at. Unless your focus is just on the uh, the arbitrage, the investment arbitrage opportunity, and then you might look to move it in in four to six years. Um, but it, so it, do, it does limit some of these investment funds that look into this space because they a lot of, a lot of them have made that seven or eight year time frame outlook, and uh, and uh, that doesn't suit everybody. So that that's led uh, you know, a number of your clients understand there's some big super funds. Yeah, you know, they have different managers, but. Some of the big state super funds here in Australia, some offshore sovereign wealth funds. Um, is farming the domain of very long-term pension funds, or is it something that individuals can get involved with? And, and how do they access it? From what you've seen, what's the best way to access it? As long as I got the, as long as I got the funds and the time frame to to get there, I mean that's a, that's the first part of it. Is as uh, just 
just had the the viewpoint that um, if you want to get in the greenfield, it's a, it's a long lead time. You know, it's a committed uh, amount of capital, and it's going to be there for you know at least ten years, and you know to get a good return, probably fifteen years beyond then. So for an individual farm to get in there, you know, we're we're probably seeing individual funds. They're looking for a a brownfield opportunity where there might be some plantings already, but a, an upside chance to develop some vacant land or to add value uh, to the property in other ways. So there's a there's opportunity there. Straight greenfield is probably the longer term sovereign type of funds where they've got maybe 15 to 20 year outlooks that are outlooks that are you know where we really need to get the investment into that space. Unfortunately, Australian super funds uh, with a, a, a cash requirement, their funds haven't always been the go-to in this space. And there's been you know, some some discussion publicly about that, but uh, I think that is uh, that is an opportunity for them. So let's transition their conversation just to lending. You know, we're, we're finding, as you know, and, and you manage um, a lot of our loans for us in terms of your team going out and visiting the farms and visiting our borrowers on a, a monthly basis, looking at you know, the biological assets, making sure they're in good order and making sure our loans are, are protected. But the intriguing thing that we've found is that compared to our commercial real estate lending book or our infrastructure lending book, there seems to be little competition um, outside of the banks in terms of lending in this space. Why, why do you think that is? I, I think um, uh, the, the lead time to turn a, a, a farming asset from you know, what it is today into something better takes a leap of faith to some extent and and um, the banks very much understand the value of, a, of an asset today and I think they can see what the value of an asset might look like in two three five years time but are they prepared to to commit to the risk you know between now and and that future outcome and it is tougher to get uh, mainstream finance than what it used to be and there's also people that have been through bad bank, not necessarily because they're bad operators, but just because of you know, some circumstances that have uh, befallen them. So you know, our environment with your book is just seeing that there's a lot of really good operators out there that uh, that need flexibility or they need speed or they need a, a really strong belief in the strategy just to get them through the next you know, six months, one year, two years, just to realise that or, or to make the, the opportunity a bit more obvious, which which hasn't been the case up till now. So I mean Merricks and, and our involvement Merricks has, has just opened our eyes a lot to uh, to the space that private credit has in building up good farming assets. Um, and, uh, and I think you, you know you found that space and and you guys are off the being busy, I'm sure. Yeah, it's been busy as you know. So we might, you know, I guess we found it as a fund manager easier to be a lender than an owner, just the, the scalability and, and, and the risk. But clearly, you know, biological assets like farming are different to, you know, lending uh, against an office or an office development in terms of dealing with those assets. And, yeah, that's obviously where it's so critical to have partners such as Southern Cross Farms and, and others that, you know, to step in and manage those farms if we ever had to. Touch wood, we haven't, we haven't had to deal with that too often you're right the, the complexity of farming is really different and uh, I, I suppose where we really enjoy our involvement with it is that we maybe just bring a, a, a farm's perspective to it not, not necessarily that because we know the commodity but we maybe know the pressures and the variabilities and the challenges that that apply to farming and maybe that's what we can in our discussions uh, with these these guys that we understand the pressures and you know, and act as a conduit between between maybe Merricks and the and the the borrowing in that 
you know, circumstance. What, with so many funds buying farms, why do you think it is that more funds aren't lending to the farm sector? I think there's there's an inherent romanticism about being a farmer. Uh, invariably, if, if we have uh, an investor that's been interested in an opportunity, we can always ice the deal by getting them onto the farm. You know, people want, like to walk around a farm and pull a piece of fruit off a tree and eat a, pe- a fresh piece of fruit. It doesn't taste any better than that. And uh, so I think there, there certainly is a, people like to be farmers. I think there's a, there's a culture in Australia that, you know, that farmers always build the country and, and driven it. Uh, I think lending isn't quite a sexy Adrian, to be uh, brutally honest. And uh, and I, and I, you found a real niche there, and and some others have done it to a lesser extent. But I think you found a real niche there that you're not competing with the banks. You found your space between between the banks of yesterday and the banks of tomorrow, and, and just you know filling in that void and allowing it to get to the next next phase. So, um, yep, there's a lot of interest and investment in in farming. And there's, and I should say that there's investment different levels. There's this belief that uh, some some investors in farming just want to own the asset, and they'll lease it out to a to a third party. And the belief there is that uh, they're taking less farming risk if they do that. Some invest in just the water because they they're taking less of a farming risk to do that. The reality is, is that uh, if a if a tree dry, dies on a farm, you lose all your value regardless. So. So the operations of the farm is still where you, know, you build the underlying value of a farm is just operating it really well. Now, you guys are backing the operator, I mean, barely. And I think that's, uh, that's a really crucial part of this is that if you, if you don't understand the operator and back the operator, then, then the, the value of the farm really will diminish enormously and quickly. I think for us, it's, you know, we, we get the passion from helping other people grow. Um, and compared to the days, I, I think when we started Merix, you were involved when we ran some farms, owned farms. It's hard, but I, I think for us, it's not. It's also not scalable. We can't have the impact that we're having today. You know, we've we've lent over a billion dollars in the last three years in in agriculture, and it's it's pretty exciting and the impact we can have, and and we hope to to grow that a lot more. But clearly, the the critical piece is a lot of intricacies to it, and and having you guys and some of our other partners on the ground. Um, it's critical. There's, there's only so much you can do from Collins Street. Yeah, having people in the regional regional towns and and who relate to the farms as well. It's 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 critical. Yeah, but just uh, just so I can maybe save some face and not get crucified by your team after this podcast. Uh, I think I was saying that uh, that farming is seen as quite uh, sexy and lending historically has been seen as really boring. What you've brought to the industry has really sexed it up for sure, Adrian. It's now super interesting. I am go to bed at night with the boring, yeah, happily being a, a, a boring boring lender and I think it's, yeah, it's, it's a nice place to be but also, you know, take some solace that we've you know, met a lot of farmers through the journey where I think we're helping them grow and, and actually sort of lead the charge where, you know, Banks, in, in all fairness, I think it's really just APRA and others saying, hey, they can't lend in this this space because they're so highly leveraged themselves. It's really the difference. Yeah, we're lending equity. Unlevered balance sheet allows us more flexibility and just to focus more on the value creation, whereas banks are so focused on short-term interest and getting paid. I mean, agriculture is very variable. So sometimes that cash flow is lumpy, but it, you know, it's it's that ability to back the value creation that's really our focus. And it really allows us to charge a little bit more. You know, I think I think the borrowers accept they're paying a bit more, but they create so much more value ultimately. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, you've certainly found a space there where 
a good operator that loves what they do and sees an opportunity can actually um, you know, come to you really quickly and uh, and realise the, the opportunity. They don't, you know, these opportunities come and go pretty quickly sometimes. And uh, and if you're not ready to go, or you don't have the support of somebody when it's ready to be realised, uh, then you know it's lost and it doesn't come back. You know, once that opportunity goes into the wind, it's gone. Um, I, I think you're in a good space at the moment. But as I said before, I think you're in a good space complementary to the banks. It's not, uh, it's not us versus them by any stretch. I think you create a, a great opportunity for, for a good bank to step in behind you and um, and support continually a, a good operation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're seeing a lot of referral from the banks um, and you know, the banks are our number one exit. You know, once the assets are at a maybe a different stage or a different place, you know, the banks the banks tend to step in. And we, we've seen that particularly in things like dairy and beef at the moment where Three, four years ago, the commodity cycle looked a little different. And so, you know, the banks, I think one of the, the challenges they have is they're looking at last year's cash flow rather than next year's cash flow, which is a, a challenge um, for them. You know, they're always looking at what they, what people earned last year. And as we know, as uh, having had and having commodity trading businesses and, and being a fund manager, which we tend to have more of a macro lens than banks, that's that's been the opportunity. But in two regards, not just the commodity price, but also working with you guys and others on what's the innovative technology, how many acres are going into the ground in a region um, and looking at that supply demand. So it's a, a critical piece. Well, Pete, you've been generous with your time in more ways than one, not just today, but you know we appreciate you know your constant input on our credit committee. And I think it's a, it's a great partnership for us, it really connects us with, um, with the bush in many ways, having you guys and others involved. We, uh, we love our regional areas and technology isn't always great. I know we had our challenges today, but uh, really appreciate the involvement with Merrick's and your team. It's a, it's a hell of a good team you're building there, Adrian. Good to have spoken today. Thanks, Pete. Good, Adrian. Talk soon. Bye. Merrick's Capital is an Australian and New Zealand fund manager, delivering a truly differentiated multi-strategy offering with extensive investment capability and global experience spanning multiple asset classes. To learn more about Merrick's Capital and what we do, please head to our website, www.merrickscapital.com.